You are now listening to the Cruise Control Podcast here on SoundCloud and iTunes. I am your host, Randy Cruz. You can follow me on Twitter at Randy J. Cruz, R-E-N-D-Y, the letter J-C-R-U-Z. Now joining me is senior NBA writer for ESPN538.com, Chris Herring, on Twitter at Herring underscore NBA. Chris, what's up, my man? How you doing? I'm great, Randy. How are you? Doing good, man. Can't complain. Uh, the weather has been holding up here in New York for, until November. It's about 70s, mid-60s here. I don't know how it is in Chicago, but right now it still feels kind of like summer around here, man. It's uh, it's getting cold here. I, uh, my girlfriend dragged me to uh, Fright Fest at Six Flags uh, Great America last weekend and went out there, and I thought I was all manly and warm <laughs> and got out there. I was wearing, I think, a hoodie. <laughs> and two thermals underneath that and was freezing like the whole time she was like let's go on this ride and i was like all right cool kept looking at the watch mm-hmm. to figure out what time we could get out of there because it was cold and so these last couple of days it's uh it's definitely been weather where you don't look out of place if you're wearing a coat i'll put it down it's getting cold okay so we had we had hoodie herring out there <laughs> oh all the time I, I don't so i have this theory not not a real one but i don't believe in umbrellas I don't use umbrellas. I don't own an umbrella. Uh, all I do is wear hoodies when it looks like there's a threat of rain. Mm-hmm. In some cases, snow. I mean, I obviously wear a coat, but I've went through so many uh, umbrellas in New York and buying them from people on the street, buying them from a CVS. I want to say every now and then I bought one from like a nice place or, you know, a nice upscale umbrella that costs you $30, $40. But I just lose them too easily. Uh, I run out of places really quickly and I lose stuff too easily. I I mean, I'm liable to leave my computer, my laptop, uh, anything, backpack, you name it. I probably left it the other day. I was at a Milwaukee Bucks game for work and left uh, my computer plug in in the outlet. And so I leave everything everywhere. So umbrellas are just a bad investment for me. So I just normally, if I think it looks like it might rain, I I also don't check the weather very much. Mm-hmm. I just kind of will look outside, out the window, and I'm like, oh, it looks overcast. I'm going to wear a hoodie. And actually, Phil Jackson at one point um, <laughs> called me out for it during Summer League because it was overcast in Las Vegas that day. I decided to put on a hoodie because that's how I judge whether I'm going to, you know, I think it might rain or not. Mm-hmm. It was 110 degrees, though. So Phil Jackson was like, were you worried that it might snow here in Las Vegas with 110 <laughs> degree weather? And I was like, ah, Phil just roasted me. Um, so... Yeah, I, at some point, maybe I'll start actually looking at the weather forecast and get an umbrella and be an adult. I mean, yeah, wearing a hoodie in 110-degree weather in Vegas is, is, is not a normal thing, Chris. It's not normal. It's questionable. It's a questionable decision. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, now we got hoodie herring out there. Did you wear the hoodie playing basketball at all this summer since we had the whole hoodie mellow phenomenon this summer? <laughs> No, I, I don't uh, think I'm going to end up going down being known for that the way that Carmelo has. I, I don't know how or why that took off and became such a thing, by the way. Like, I think it's funny. Mm-hmm. First week or two is funny, but I'm like, you know, it's fine. But, like, to the point where he's wearing it for media day photos and stuff, like, under a uniform, it was a little odd. Like, I don't, you know, I, I think the part of it that made it somewhat funny to me is that um, – all those videos that Chris Brickley takes and of Mello and other people that he works with, that was kind of funny that 
you know, I think that was the phenomenon kind of was that he looks fantastic in the workout videos because Chris edits them to make it so that people never miss. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, other than that though, I, I wasn't really clear on why that became such a big deal or why people found that so interesting. But, um, I don't know if I knew what people would find captivating and interesting, I'd probably be a much better writer and have a uh, much greater readership than I do. But mm -hmm. I, I'm surprised that still, uh, kind of gets people so hyped at this point. Yeah, I, I mean, real quick, I, I did I did get a chance to go into the, you know, what I call it, the, the Hoodie Mellow Gym. Um, got invited by Chris and went out there and saw a couple guys working out. Uh, Mellow, um, David Lee, Joe Kim Noah, Ben Gordon, even even Jerry Stackhouse was in, it was in there. Um, and then it, it was it was a great, great experience to see. You know what you see on the Instagram videos and the Bleacher Report and the House of Highlights is one thing, but when you're there, it's a whole different ball game. And this guy Chris does a great, you know, phenomenal work with uh, with the whole shooting drills and this and this. It, it, it's a lot to explain, but you know, I think the second to last time I was there, I did get in fact to actually see Melo and meet him because you know when I'm working with the Knicks back then he wasn't going to a lot of the events or he probably go to a different kind of events than, than, than me. So me seeing him and meeting him and getting a chance to, to just to chop it up with him with like five minutes with no hoopla, no cameras, no kids coming up to him for an autograph. It was like five people, five people in the, in the whole gym spoke to him. Very cool. No, no pun intended mellow kind of, kind of guy. And, you know, I, I just wish that, media and fans can kind of see what kind of guy he is out, you know, outside of the court. So just me, me meeting Melo for the first time, uh, was, was great, was fantastic. And I, I just wish people could see that other side of him. Yeah. I mean, I, so I've, I've always kind of tried to distance myself just a little bit from what I see in the locker room, even my own interactions, because I think when you are writing about people for a living, uh, you know, I think people, made just like with anything else in life where um you know there's always that saying that uh you can judge someone based on basically how they treat you when you can't do anything for them and so mm -hmm. i don't think mellow or anyone else views me as someone that can do something for them i think for the most part you know gms are who they are they evaluate basketball probably in most cases better than i do um but, but obviously, I mean, people want to have good media personas for the most part. Some players don't care about it. But, you know, I've always thought that um, people can put on a face or kind of put on a show for us. Uh, I mean, I've had private moments with Carmelo, having dinner with him, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one sit-downs with him, mm. just, you know, times where we just talk in the locker room and stuff. I've always found him to be uh, very fun to talk to, right. very polite to talk to. Uh, I think he's been more than accommodating for the most part to the media in terms of dealing with us, uh, especially for all the questions, all the stuff that he had to answer for that I really don't think was his fault. Um, I think that, you know, I think he would readily say that, you know, we didn't get it done there. And part of that was on me. Um, you know, he, he was very reluctant at times to kind of change his game the way that certain people might've wanted him to, whether it was how often he was going to play it before or uh, relinquishing, you know, a certain role within Mike D'Antoni's offense or, what have you. I mean, there, there were definitely things, you know, defending at a certain level consistently. There were definitely things that you could kind of point the finger at him for, but 
he wasn't the one responsible for building that team uh, the way that the front office did. And, right. Uh, he wasn't the one that gave himself a no trade clause. Um, he wasn't the one that was, you know, going on Twitter, kind of critiquing his game in a way that, you know, was um, inappropriate. I thought kind of disrespectful to someone of his stature. Um, you know, that was Phil, and that was other people within the organization. So I, I don't, I didn't see him as the problem, the biggest problem there. Uh, and I, you know, I think most people can kind of see that for what it was. Uh, I do think over the last couple of years it was kind of an us versus them sort of thing um, that just escalated in a way that, you know, I think that's kind of what happens sometimes uh, with, with married couples that shouldn't be married anymore. I think something should have happened much earlier. The no trade clause made that difficult. Mm-hmm. Mello, you know, didn't necessarily help matters by kind of narrowing his list down to one or two teams. Uh, when the minute he opened it up, period. And so, I mean, that could have happened much sooner, but Mello, you know, I think wanted to make it work. And I think, uh, you know, for certain reasons, wanted to stay in New York. I think there are public personal reasons behind why I wanted to stay in New York as well. Um, so, I mean, I'm happy that they both moved forward. I mean, you look at what Melo is a part of now. He gets us, you know, maybe not a great chance, but a, a slight chance and a, a decent chance to to make something special happen there in Oklahoma City and to be part of something special. And, you know, if you're a Nick fan, you're optimistic because you have someone that could legitimately be a superstar is 22 years old. And so, you know, giving him the reins at this point, it's, it's not a bad deal for either side. We're chatting with Chris Herring, senior NBA writer for ESPN538.com. Before we get into the whole NBA stuff, um, the last time you were on this show, you were with the Wall Street Journal. You're now at 538.com, I think for about a year now. Um, you yep. were living in New York, but now you're living back in Chicago, correct? Yep. Okay, so now real quick, what, how has the, the, you know, for the past year, how has that transition been, uh, been for going from Wall Street Journal to 538 and from New York living back in Chicago? It's been great, really. I mean, uh, you know, I think a couple things. You know, I, I went from being in a long-distance relationship to now, you know, being in the same city and area as, as my girlfriend. And, uh, you know, I post pictures of my nephew pretty I'd say relatively frequently. And, and so mm-hmm. getting to see him more often and instead of being someone that he gets to see in pictures, getting to be someone that he gets to see every weekend, every other weekend and uh, getting to be at birthday parties and stuff like that and not having to FaceTime with him and spending time with my little sister and, you know, getting to see my friends for their birthdays and hanging out with them. Right. So that, that sort of stuff, I mean, it's, it's not stuff that fans would care about, but I mean, I almost feel like that stuff allows me in some ways to write better because, you know, I'm not, not that I was ever depressed, but I'm like not having to, um, you know, not having to be frustrated over how seldom I get to see my family or my friends and, and unhappy not getting to be a, a big milestone sorts of things that my friends are having. Uh, so that on a personal level, it's great, but then even on a professional level, um, you know, and I've had Nick fans tell me this and, and I always kind of appreciate when I see stuff like this, um, anytime I post anything about New York, about the Knicks, uh, especially if I write a piece on the Knicks, you know, at this point in my job, uh, people are like, you know, man, come back. Like we, we, we miss you out here. And it's, yeah. uh, but I have just <laughs> as many people saying, uh, you know, that aren't Knicks fans or in some cases, Knicks fans too, that say like, I'm so happy you don't write about them anymore because you provide such interesting looks on the team I really care about or about this other team that. I didn't care about, but now I realize I should care about it. It's a player that I really like. And so uh, just kind of being able to spread my wings um, to focus on more than just the Knicks 
who obviously are changing and are going through a new phase. But, um, you know, to a certain extent, I covered the majority of what we're going to see, you know, happen. Maybe not this, this new phase where they've got a, a young star who's 22, but, you know, I, I, the first year I was there, I, I saw them basically come pretty close to not necessarily winning the East, but uh, finishing as a number two seed and being a contender of some sort. Um, and, you know, seeing Melo win a scoring title, seeing Tyson Chandler win defensive player of the year, mm-hmm. and obviously seeing what had happened in all the years before I got there, where the teams really struggled and was really bad, seeing the infighting, seeing the dysfunction. I saw all that stuff up close. And so um, after a while, you kind of go through something and realize, um, am I going to get an opportunity to kind of cover something different? And if I stay at this, like, at what point does it become like diminishing returns where um, I get too used to seeing what I'm seeing to where I'm not able to write something new and fresh anymore? And so I wanted another challenge, um, and I think this job provides that. But on top of that, too, I mean, it's probably the biggest challenge, and I was just talking about this before we, we got on the podcast. Um, I'm also teaching, and so I'm, my, my time is really, really it kind of forces me to manage my time differently. Uh, I teach twice a week at Northwestern, which is um, either the most prestigious or one of the two or three most prestigious journalism programs in the country. I teach grad students I do it twice a week. Um, and so that's a, a huge challenge for me. And that's something that, you know, when you talk about Chicago versus New York, I probably wouldn't have that opportunity on the table. Definitely not at Northwestern, but maybe anywhere if I was still back in New York. And so it's, it's awesome to be able to do that and, you know, to be able to do that at age 30 and dealing with students in some cases that are older than I am uh, to be able to teach them and, you know, hear from them and to see them get jobs and the fulfillment that you get, you know, watching someone that you've worked closely with land a job or, you know, writing in a style that you've kind of helped them to create. Uh, it's just an awesome feeling. And I think kind of goes even beyond in some ways what I do uh, in my own writing. Now, you, you know, you did mention a few things, uh, New York versus Chicago, which I, w- I will get to in a second. But you mentioned about, you know, different challenges, spreading your wings out. Um, one thing that I've been able to see and notice is that, correct me if I'm wrong, but now you're part of the, the lab podcast on 538.com, right? Yes. Okay, so now you're like the host, right? Uh so yes and no, it, it's, it's strange to kind of lay it out, but basically we have, we basically have two versions of it. We have one where every Wednesday, me, Kyle Wagner and Neil Payne, um, basically three of us that write about basketball, the three of us that do write about basketball for 538, mm. we podcast together and we kind of talk about the, the issues from week to week in the league. And, you know, we try to pull out. Uh, kind of a big story or something that's been a big story that week or a team that's played really well, players played really well. Right. We actually talked about KP today and, and that should be out either later tonight or first thing tomorrow. Um, and we do that. We talk about something that is kind of like a, a smaller sample size issue that we're interested to see whether that will hold up statistically uh, or trend wise. And Neil hosts that one. And then me and Kyle are kind of the two experts or analysts. And then the other thing I do that this has kind of involved me spreading my wings more is from time to time when I get opportunities to, we'll make trips around the country to talk about um, stuff with someone one-on-one. And so my first one that I recorded was Lakers owner Jeannie Buss. Um, I just recently interviewed uh, Hornets GM Rich Cho. 
And so I'm going to do more of those throughout the year where I just kind of will sit down, you know, fly across the country, basically have lunch with somebody and just kind of talk about their team or the different elements of someone's team with them. Uh, and those I do one-on-one. And that's something that obviously did not do at the Wall Street Journal as far as podcasting. Um, and, and that, you know, it's a, it's a fun opportunity uh, to kind of be trusted with that. I know a lot of people have podcasts, but, um, you know, to do that on top of everything else I'm doing, it's really challenging to find the time. It's I'm, I'm also realizing how challenging it is to, to ask really good questions uh, as an interviewer and to, you know, find a way to make a conversation interesting to everybody else. Um, it, it's, 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 it's a challenge. And I, I think I wanted to be challenged and I, I was being challenged at the wall street journal, but I just kind of think it was all within the paradigm of like covering the Knicks and finding a new way to cover the Knicks because I'd kind of written about them with my own style for four or five years. Mm. And I was just kind of worried that, you know, at a certain point that, people would get used to that and people would get used to that style. And um, I almost like writing about them now more just because I kind of feel like when I don't watch them every game, it's more challenging to try to play catch up and figure out what have I missed here and how have they changed since the last time I really sat down and watched them. And so um, everything for me is about challenges. I kind of feel like, you know, NBA players will tell you the same thing too, where who was it? It was Giannis and all these other people that Kobe was like laying out challenges for them. And I kind of feel like I'm, I'm like that with myself. Well, you know, the question I, I was going to ask you was that now, you know, usually like someone like me would have to ask you to, to, to come on the show and you're the guest. But now with 538 and you're interviewing Jeannie Buss and the Hornets, the, the Hornets GM, you're now like the one asking the questions, on, on, you know, on the podcast. Is there anything different from being a guest, um, being a guest on a show as opposed to being the, the person asking all the questions? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's totally different. Uh, <laughs> I'll put it this way. I didn't prepare for, you know, our conversation, your, yours and my conversation to talk to you. I mean, you're we the one do. asking me the questions. So, <laughs> um, because of that, like, you know, I, I feel like I can think on my feet enough to where I don't need to really prepare for, mm-hmm. uh, what you're asking me. I can just answer on the fly. Right. I could not sit and interview, you know, a, I don't know exactly Jeannie Buss's finances, the team's ownership split, but like I wouldn't sit down across from a billionaire and just kind of wing it. Uh, and frankly, I don't think anybody that has a good podcast does that. You know, when I listen to Zach Lowe, um, and, and frankly, like I've sat down with Zach Lowe, he's interviewing me and he um, will ask me for a pretty detailed rundown. Like, what are you working on? Um, he, he, What I like about him, the other thing is that he, generally tries to sit down and interview people that have just kind of put out a really lengthy piece of work, whether it's a book or um, if it is a, a long story, feature story someone's worked on. He likes to draw attention to that and likes to try to credit people where it's due. Um, and so he, I mean, he has done his homework. He's read those pieces. He's analyzed whatever they were watching. You know, he obviously watches the games as closely as anybody, if not closer than anybody um, and he has like a laundry list of things that he's prepared to ask and then can't even get to by the end of the interview because we kind of can delve so deeply into the issue. So it's much different, you know, I spend hours probably just as long uh, preparing interview questions for people as I do in writing stories and researching stories because I'm trying to look at what they've been asked before, what sorts of reactions they got from those questions when they were asked the things before. I listen to the, pa- the previous podcasts that they've done. I try to put it within the context of what's happening in the news. 
so, you know, asking Jeannie Buss about the tampering fine that the Lakers got, but also what it's like to have a, you know, a president, a team president that is so wealthy like Magic is that he can just offer to pay the, the half million dollar fine by himself out of his own pocket. So, you know, things that are lighthearted, things that are uh, more serious in tone. And I, I think, you know, balancing that out uh, is difficult too, to make sure that the conversation has a flow to it. And it's not just all these haymakers right out of the gate, mm-hmm. but also not just these softball questions for the whole interview. So it's a, it's a really big challenge uh, for me. Maybe it's something that has come more naturally to other people. I've only done a couple of them so far, but you know, it's something that I look forward to doing more of and hopefully, you know, can generate a pretty good guest list. Uh, once people see that, uh, that I take these pretty seriously and try to do a good, good job with them. And for me, I, I, you know, I, I always love having you on because we always tend to wing it. We can talk about random stuff, sports or whatever. Like for example, when you had lunch with Jeannie Buss and, and the Hornets GM, please tell me they, that they paid for your, your, your lunch, right? They did, right? <laughs> they did, but I mean, honestly, if they had, wow. I'll, I'll put it this You're big time. I could have, I could have covered it through work. Uh, I mean, actually, it's it's actually a very good practice to cover lunch for uh, for people like that, just so that I mean, not to say that if I buy someone that you know, their team makes millions and millions of dollars a year lunch uh i mean it's, i don't think they're going to look at it as me giving them favorable coverage forever but mm. the idea that a journalist would pay for lunch for the interview subject that's that's standard and traditional i guess just so more than anything like i guess we technically could be influenced by the idea of them buying us lunch but i'm coming all the way out there to fly out to where they play or where they you know where they practice and stuff and so i think it's just their way of kind of returning the favor and kind of showing me around their their city but uh but they pay for lunch so before we get into this whole NBA talk, uh, one more thing. You did mention New York versus Chicago, and, and it's so crazy, it's so random that, that I actually wrote something down before I even called you up regarding New York and Chicago as far as the sports landscape. I know you're big, you know, you're, you're Chicago native. Uh, I have no idea what the Bulls are doing. They're rebuilding. Um, the Cubs, you know, they made it to the LCS. They, they, they won the World Series last year. The White Sox, no playoffs. I don't watch hockey, so I have no idea what the Blackhawks are doing. Uh, Chicago Bears, they got to have a new quarterback in Trubisky. Over here in New York, Yankees, one game away from the World Series. Uh, the, 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 the Giants are just free-falling. Everybody's getting hurt on their roster. The Jets have been surprisingly better than, than the Giants. And, of course, the Knicks are at 500 here in November. Um, which sports landscape is heading more in the right direction, New York or Chicago, Chris? Uh, hmm. I don't know, honestly. I mean, they're probably about even. It's probably the best way to put it. I mean, um, I I will be totally transparent here. I have not paid a single second of attention to the NFL this year. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not watching it. I, I just, at this point, think the league is kind of scummy. Uh, I am furious with the way that the Kaepernick stuff has been handled in the league. I'm, I, I think the league should be embarrassed for the way that they handled that. It's very clear he's being blackballed mm. for a peaceful protest, which, you know, we hear all the talk about snowflakes and everything like that. I'm like, we really can't get this man a job for something that is a very legitimate issue in this country. So I haven't paid as much attention to that. I haven't paid any attention to that, but when I think about the other stuff, I mean, it, it's tough to judge it just on how a team finishes. Um, you know, we talk about what the Knicks are doing and what, you know, what a lot of people thought the Jets were doing in terms of 
tanking the season, but that's, you know, kind of what got the Cubs in position to win a World Series. It took a while, but that's how it worked with them. A lot of people, a lot of smart baseball analysts and stuff think the White Sox are on the exact same path the Cubs are on. It's also the same path that the Astros took. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think a couple of years from now, we could very well be looking at a White Sox team that will get back to the World Series. Uh, what would it be t- 10, 12 years removed from when they la- won, last won their, their World Series? So, you know, I think they're probably headed in the right direction, even if the progress is slow. Um, you know, I think the Bulls are, are very far away from mm, doing yeah. anything anytime soon. Markinen actually looks pretty good. Yeah. Um, and I think had double doubles in his first, what, four games or something like that. Um, he, he's impressed different people. LeBron said he was impressed by the guy. Um, but that said, I mean, that organization is just real responsible. And, um, you know, even now, even if Mark and turns out to be a very good player, would still say that the Bulls could have gotten more out of that deal uh, when they dealt away Butler. I think at a bare minimum, they shouldn't have traded their own pick in that deal. Um, they shouldn't have probably sold their pick that Jordan Bell was involved in, uh, since he looks like he's going to be a productive player for the best team in the league. Um, so we'll see what happens with them. But I mean, I'm 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 reluctant to say that Chicago is the city that is more on the up and up in terms of sports because you do still have the Yankees. I mean, I just kind of feel like all feels right with the world, with at least two thirds of the city when the Yankees are playing well, um, and, and the fact that they were this close to winning a World Series and what a lot of people deemed as a rebuilding year. And so that's positive for them. And then even for the other part of town with the Mets, I think fans can at least be happy in some cases because they have replaced Terry Collins. And so I think a lot of people felt like that was overdue, mm-hmm. which on some levels is a little crazy given that they were just in the World Series a couple years ago too. But stuff changes really quickly in sports. And, uh, and so, I mean, it's hard to really take one season, even two seasons, uh, with any team or any group of teams and really say that, you know, this team looks like they're finally doing it the right way or that they're on the right path because stuff can change very quickly. Um, you know, I'm sure people were – excited about the Giants this year and then all the Buckingham gets hurt and then you know you kind of have what you have there with the Giants this season and of course the Knicks we have someone here at 7-3 averaging 30 points a game 30 plus in the first five I mean first five out of the first uh six games um mm-hmm. you know again no Melo no Phil Jackson Jeff Hornacek gets a clean slate of running his own offense and there's different players. Noah's still out with the whole suspension. Um, they did get Cantor and McDermott for Mello. Um, still trying to figure out the point guard spot. Uh, Frank Nilakina just came back from an injury. But what I know is I know it's very early, but what you've been able to see from KP, are you surprised or are, are you more like more like an awe or wow? Like this is what this guy is capable of doing in, in his third year and he's only 22 years old. 21, whatever he is. 22, yeah. 22. I, I mean, it's it's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm definitely surprised. Uh, I mean, you know, if I was in awe, I guess I'd still be surprised, surprised by what he's doing. I I didn't expect it to happen this quickly. Now, now it's still early, um, but I, I, I remember this about the first year I covered him, the second year. I felt like he had a lot of games where he had 16, 17 points first quarter and a half, two quarters. And then would just kind of slow down. It was almost like someone that ran a marathon or like a long distance race too quickly and then just ran out of gas. He would always, and I tweeted about this last year, 
he would always start games with like 21, 22 points through the first three quarters mm-hmm. and then would somehow never hit 30. And I always thought that was really strange. You take a step back and you realize that some of the time it's because the defense tightens up on him. Sometimes he just gets cold. Uh, but more often than not, and this frustrated fans left and right, I feel like he actually could have gotten there, but then the team stopped passing him the ball. Uh, everything had to go through Mello. It, it kind of felt like the the Fresh Prince offense where, you know, pass it to Will sort of thing where <laughs> Carmelo had to touch the ball. Um, and then obviously they had Derrick Rose last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think back to the year before that, I think they had Aaron Aflalo. And so there were, there were other guys that kind of could take that number one role for a quarter. And KP would go seven, eight possessions without touching the ball, even though he was the team's leading scorer at the time of that point in the game. And so it's been nice to not have to do the what if with KP at this yeah. point. Not, not what if he was the lone option. What if Carmelo weren't out there? And just to see what it's like for him where he can be the number one option whenever he's in the game instead of just being when Melo's on the bench. And so I, I'm definitely impressed. Uh, I think he'll probably slow down from this at least a little bit. I don't think it's sustainable to score 30, you know, five out of six games after the rest of the season, five out of every six games. But, uh, I mean, there's some stuff that's sustainable here. He is no longer kind of wondering, you know, worrying, wondering when it's going to be his opportunity to touch the ball. Uh, there's not real hesitation anymore in what he's doing. I kind of feel like second, third, fourth year guys, there normally is that hesitation. I feel like we've finally seen Giannis kind of work through that kink as well, where he kind of knows what he wants to do with the ball instead of kind of wondering, you know, is it right for me to take a shot here? And maybe some of that is Melo not being there anymore, just the ability to kind of go when he gets the ball and go when he touches the ball and, uh, you know, not worrying if it's going to prompt a benching or anything like that. If he pulls up from 29, 30 feet, uh, you know, I think that confidence actually pays dividends quite a bit the way you saw the other night against Denver. Now, Chris, a, 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 a two part question. Um, what has surprised you so far early in the season with a, a, a team or a player and two, um, new guys who are playing on their new team, like Miller with OKC, uh, Butler on Minnesota, Kyrie in Boston, uh, Russell with Brooklyn, uh, even Dwight on Charlotte. Who from the new guys on a new team has surprised you for the better? Okay. Um, well, I'll answer the second one first. You're going to have to remind me what the first one was because then I start thinking about your second question. <laughs> okay, no problem. Um, I actually and kind of blown away by the guys that got traded to Indiana from Oklahoma City. Oladipo, Victor yeah. Oladipo, DeMontis, Sabonis. I mean, Oladipo's averaging like 25 games. I mean, it's kind of like, it feels like all these guys' stats are on steroids so far. I mean, KP, Giannis, we're talking about KP averaging 30. Yeah. Giannis was up around 40 for the first four or five games uh, before he had a game where I think he finished with 28 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we're talking about numbers that look you know, crazy uh, for several people, but I'm not sure anything is crazier than the idea of looking up and seeing Victor Oladipo averaging 26 or D'Angelo Russell averaging 22 after the year he had in LA, a a rough year that he had in LA. Um, You know, looking at Ben Simmons, uh, you know, putting up double doubles and some cases, triple doubles averaging 20. I mean, these are some insane numbers we're seeing from guys that we either knew little about or are learning more about now. And so, um, you know, I think you can think of really, but I'm impressed with Victor Oladipo. Um, after having a season where I was kind of disappointed in 
how little he did in Oklahoma City, meaning how much offense he took over uh, alongside Russell Westbrook. I kept thinking, and I actually wrote this a couple times, that Oladipo had way too much talent to be limited to just being a corner shooter in Oklahoma City. And looking at Russ's usage numbers and shot attempts per game and everything else, thinking to myself, Russ probably doesn't need to do that much. Oladipo's capable of handling the ball. You remember in Orlando, they had him run out there as the point guard for a whole season. He's capable of handling the ball. And so seeing him do more of that, seeing him hit a game winner, um, you know, and hearing people say, like, man, Paul George never did that in terms of the game winner. And, you know, even what Oladipo's averaging for right now, I don't expect he'll do that for the whole season either. But, uh, I mean, these are numbers that, I mean, that's worthy of replacing Paul George with consider what he brings on both sides of the floor. So I've been really impressed with him so far. So, yeah, the first question was what uh, um, any team or player so far that has been surprising to you so far? Uh, I mean, there's a couple there as well. I mean, I think it's been kind of a topsy-turvy start just with so many new teams and good prominent teams trying to gel. You mentioned Oklahoma City. Cleveland is a good example of that as well. But, I mean, as a result of those teams starting slowly, to some extent, you've seen Orlando, you've seen Pistons, um, start out very high. You've seen Memphis start out with the best record in the West, which uh, I definitely did not see that coming. I kind of felt like this would be a down year for them. Uh, some people, a lot of people predicted them to miss the playoffs after losing Zach Randolph, uh, after losing Tony Allen, kind of the heart and soul of that team in a lot of people's opinion. So I, I've been impressed by several teams, but I, I guess if I had to pick just one, uh, you know, maybe you could make an argument that the Pistons were going to be a playoff team, but I don't think many people did that with Orlando this year. Um, and, you know, you've had the, the East level out so much in terms of uh, all the star players kind of going West, for the most part with the exception of Gordon Hayward. Um, you know, maybe it is just a situation where you've got teams trying to figure it out, like Cleveland and out in Boston to a certain extent, and the teams that stayed pretty uh, you know, basically kept their continuity with teams like Orlando, maybe a team like Charlotte takes advantage of this as well, that aren't trying to figure out as much on the fly in the first few weeks, and maybe they're benefiting from it. But um, Aaron Gordon has looked like a star. I mean, finally they're playing the guy at his natural position, which is power forward, but he's um, added range to his shot this year and shot well from three. I don't think that will hold up either, but uh, but it's been good to see that. And, you know, I've, I've thought for a long time that Frank Vogel was a good coach. Um, the first year was obviously rough for him, but um, but maybe some elements of this are sustainable. Uh, Alfred Payton is out for them. It has been out. And so other guys have gotten more opportunities to kind of touch the ball. Vucevic um, has averaged more than 28 games so far. Evan Fournier has two in addition to Aaron Gordon. So that's an interesting team. He's got a lot of young pieces on that team. You just hope that one or two of them pans out well. Um, but they've been more interesting than I think a lot of people expected that they would be. Oh, yeah, definitely, because, you know, for for me, I'm not praying on the downfall of the Warriors or the Cavaliers, but it, it does, for me as a fan, you know, I like the fact that other teams like the Magic and, and Indiana and, you know, Philadelphia are like, you know, again, it's early, but they're in the mix that right now Cleveland is not dominating the Eastern Conference and Golden State is not doing, you know, they're not dominating currently the Western Conference where you have like the Clippers up top, the Memphis, Minnesota doing their thing. Uh, if you look at it right now, uh, freaking San Antonio is ninth in, in the Western Conference. OKC is eighth. So I think like 
the, the parity is getting closer. Again, Golden State can win 10 in a row tomorrow, and Cleveland can win five in a row tomorrow. Then, we, you know, we're back to square one. But I think for, for the time being, different teams out the norm are doing well that, hey, you know, maybe it may not be so easy, uh, easy for Golden State and Cleveland down the road. Yeah, I mean, I I still struggle to see how anyone really, really pushes Golden State, barring something happening. I, I've said for a while now that I think that Golden State would actually still have a chance, even if Steph or KD got hurt. Now, not both, but if one of them got hurt, I, I think that somebody could challenge them. Um, and, and I think that Golden State could still prevail, potentially, in a situation like that. That's how deep they are, how loaded they are. Uh, Cleveland, on the other hand, this has been a pretty ugly start for them. Uh, they've they've mm-hmm. had games where they've just looked really bad. Obviously, the Knicks game was one of them. Uh, I think Knicks fans probably were just enjoying it for what it was. Uh, but, I mean, when you looked at the construction of that team, I think people figured that they might struggle out of the gate. I had kind of a prediction that I shared with coworkers and stuff. I felt like the, the Dwayne Wade starting a shooting guard thing would last very, very short. Uh and lo and behold, it went for about a week before they switched that up. Uh, seemed like it had already done a decent amount of damage. They are made it known that he was not happy about it, not thrilled with it at least. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it seemed like to me that it wasn't really helping Wade or JR to have them in those roles. And so it may still take a while for JR to get off the ground. LeBron has said that he um, needed to get in better shape. Derek Rose is adjusting and has already gotten hurt once there. Um, you know, they've gone back and forth on whether Tristan is a starter, whether Drake Crowder will start. Uh, really, the only guys on that team that kind of can plan on what their roles are, to some extent, are LeBron and Kevin Love. And even with that, I mean, LeBron, because of the injury to Derrick Rose and the fact that Isaiah Thomas is there yet, getting K. Felder away, I mean, he basically is their only point guard on some nights and has already run point guard and started there. And so even his role changes quite a bit, just considering that, yes, he can handle the ball, but it probably takes a lot more out of him. And, oh, by the way, he's doing it when he's admitting that he's not in his best shape just yet. And so it, it, it could be a tough road for Cleveland. I mean, I don't think anyone is ready to say that they're not going to get back to Eastern numbers and win and get to the finals again for what would it be a seventh Eastern time uh, with LeBron. But uh, at the same time, this is a team that has a lot of kinks to work out. They have plenty of time to do it, but it's a team that uh, I'm not really in love with at this moment. If this was a team without LeBron, I don't think many people would pick them to even make the playoffs. Uh, maybe not even finish as one of the top 10 teams in the East. Both the Lakers and Philadelphia are, are both 3-4. and four. Uh, What have you been able to see in life from what you see from Lonzo Ball and Ben Simmons, Chris? I mean, I'll put it this way. Ben Simmons looks like the real deal. Uh, mm-hmm. He Sometimes you see this from guys when they sit out that first year. Um, and in Embiid's case, the first two years. Um, but I can remember the same thing with Blake Griffin as well. Sometimes you just get someone that looks like a man-child uh, when you compare them to the rest of the rookies. And I think Ben Simmons is doing that. Uh, I think Embiid obviously was kind of a different level beast uh, by the time the third year rolled around and the stats he put up in just those 31 games. But Simmons the passes that he throws sometimes. And, you know, this is a guy without a jump shot. We're kind of talking about Giannis, except more smooth and under control than Giannis was at that age. And even maybe more smooth now than Giannis is. Uh, The only thing he's really missing is a jump shot. You know, he's not a consistent difference maker on defense yet, but could get there given how big he is and how tall he is um, for someone that basically is playing a guard off guard position. 
Um, from the Lakers, I, I feel like Lonzo has been very up and down. I feel like um, the impact of Lonzo on his teammates has kind of been up and down as well. Where you see certain guys shooting the ball way better when he's not on the court. Uh, Kyle Kuzma being a good example of that. Um, and Lonzo just kind of, you know, taking his lumps at times, depending on who he's playing against, right. can get his when he needs to, um, you know, and obviously he basically had the triple-double performance in his second game, but also is going to have his fair share of duds. He's just not really that athletic. Uh, we knew that already, but uh, that's a tough position to play when you're not. So I feel like there are going to be times where guys really go at him and uh, and make the most out of playing against him. Um, what I do like about the Lakers, though, is that Julius Randle looks like a slightly different player than what we've seen before. Uh, aggressive, but just kind of has a ton of tools that are useful to a team. And so I like that. I like the fact that Kuzma looks like he's going to be a knockdown shooter at some point and has a lot of different skills that he can make use of. Um, it's a team that has a direction. They still need a little bit more. Uh, Brandon Ingram has kind of had ups and downs as well but you're just hoping to see more out of him and more out of Lonzo consistently. That, that's the name of the game for them is just can you be consistent. Randall seems to have turned a corner in that regard, but you want your other young guys to do the same thing. Would you say Chris Herring is a big baller or no? <laughs> Hell no, because I, I don't care how much money I earn make in this world per year, what have you. You will never see me buying $495 sneakers. I probably paid – Close to that at times for shoes that I really, really wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I bought Cool Grays right after they came out, and I'm not someone that's willing to stand in line. I'm not enough of a sneakerhead to do that. But I've paid a fair, you know, penny for for certain Jordans and certain other sneakers, but uh, you would never pay me. You could you couldn't pay me enough to want to to pay 495 <laughs> to get shoes that are just you know shoes that we don't even know if the guy is going to be a good basketball player or not. Uh, let alone shoes that, you know, to some people they look nice, to some people they look garbage. But, uh, you know, I would have to be in love with the shoe to ever pay anywhere near that much. And I don't think uh, I have an infatuation with the big baller brand sneakers right now. So do you recall what pair of sneakers that you spent the most money on, whether back in the day or recently? Uh, no, it was probably the Cool Grays. I mean, I've looked at getting a couple pairs for 400 but when it really comes down to it, I'm like, man, I could get a couple, two or three pairs of really nice sneakers for that much. And that's normally the way I think right. uh, when it comes to shoes. It's like, well, do I really want to blow that much money on one pair? Um, and normally my answer will be no. I've splurged before on Cool Grays, and I think I got a second pair of Cool Grays because uh, I was making a personal dirty. I really like those shoes. Those are probably some of my favorite Jordan brand ones, uh, the 11s. But no, I'm... Other than that, I can't remember any other one that I'd spent that much money on or close to that much money. Don't feel bad, Chris, because I'm not a big baller either, right? <laughs> I don't think many of us are. I mean, what did they say? that six Was it 600 orders of the shoes or something like that? Maybe a little bit more, a little bit less that they had. Uh, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's really easy, too. Like, you talk to people that are in and around the shoe industry, and they basically tell you, like, look, the reason that the shoes are so expensive, other than to just grab your attention, which is kind of what LeVar is known for at this point, mm-hmm. the only other reason that the shoes are that pricey is because because this is not Nike or Adidas or Reebok, right. and there's no manufacturer out there that's just making these shoes for them and doing it cheaply when you don't know how many shoes you're going to make and you can't mass produce them 
it costs more money to do them one by one, basically. And so that's kind of where this cost is coming in, where, um, you know, if you, if you only know you're going to be making 300 or 400 of them, you, you're not going to have a manufacturer set up to do them in mass numbers. And so by making smaller quantities of them, you have to charge more because there's more work and time going into this to do it essentially one at a time. And so that's also why I think you had the pre-orders, you know, backlogged all the way to November. I don't even think the shoes have come out yet. You know, we're uh, 10, almost 10 games into the season and we still haven't even seen um, these shoes come out yet. I think it's going to be closer to Thanksgiving. So what I'm curious to see is if they're actually going to hit that, that date that they said they would by, you know, late November, will they get these shoes out to the people who spent that much money on them? Because if I've spent that much money, I better have my shoes a day you said it's dropping. (laughs) Yeah, because I I I know Jay Z said he bought one. He you know he did not get him yet, but he bought one. Yeah, good luck with that, man. Yeah, I think he said he. I think he even said he bought two. Okay. Uh, and I, I respect that. You know, like I think what I've noticed when I've been critical of Levar Ball and on Twitter, uh, I've noticed right away that the people that get most upset about that are normally black men that you know that tweet at me and they're like you know why are you coming at a dude that's just trying to you know start to have his own to kind of have his own industry and create his own lane as a lot of people would like to say in response to what he said before um but that you know most it, it's really interesting i think to him the racial divide that a lot of people feel like is there and i think it's very clear that there is one um i thought it was really interesting kind of pointed what scott brooks said the other day about LeVar Ball basically saying that, look, my dad died when I was two. I would give anything to have had a relationship with a father at all, let alone one that very clearly loves his son. Like he might be a little bit over the top in terms of how he talks about him and hyperbolic and and what have you. But Mm -hmm. like, I think most people that grow up without a father would love to have that. And so, I mean, that's some level of perspective that I don't think enough people are considering. I do wonder at times if there are elements of Lonzo's marketability that he's hurt. I, I still think Lonzo, if he's a star, there's nothing that will really hinder his ability to become one and uh, his box office ability to be able to make the sort of money he could get. But I, I do wonder, you know, when LeVar comes in and says, look, I'll give you all my sons as a package deal for a billion, um, you know, for a shoe deal. I, I mean, I, I think, Lonzo very likely would have gotten a deal from Nike or Adidas or anybody else had he not done that. Now, I don't know what that deal would have been for. It obviously wasn't going to be for a billion or anywhere near that much. But, um, you know, that's the only thing sometimes I kind of cringe about. It's just, you know, when you see a guy like Pat Beverly just bodying up Lonzo the whole game, um, is he making it tougher on his son in some ways because of all the attention? And I think the answer to that is definitely yes. My only other question is, is he hurting some of his money-making possibilities? And I think in some ways the answer might also be yes. He's also getting way more attention because of his dad, and so I'm sure there are benefits from that. But I'm curious to see what happens with the guy's career. I mean, the better player he is, the less maybe you need to hear from LeVar. And uh, I'm hoping that he can kind of shut up some of the people that want to see him fail because I don't think someone's dad being a loud mouth is a good reason to want to see somebody fail. I want, I want these guys to do well, especially guys that come out as 19 year old, um, you know, want to see them fall flat on their face, especially when they have nothing to do with the criticisms that are being mm-hmm. thrown their way. All right, Chris, one more before I get into some random stuff. Uh, I mentioned LA and Philly earlier with ball and, and Simmons because, um, Jaleel Okafor needs a new home. Philly don't want him. 
I don't know who would take him. Uh, they're not bringing him back for uh, with the fourth year option. Don't know if they're gonna try to trade him or just let him walk. Uh, I did mention LA because they they could use Okafor. I, I I don't know if they would want him or had to give up a lot to get him. But a guy like Okafor, um, what are some in your mind potential destinations that'll be best for him? Is it LA? Is it a team like Boston or a team that's not even in playoff contention. What do you think are the best landing spots uh, for Jaleel Okafor? Oh, he's a rough case at this point. I mean, just looking at the landscape of the league right now, I mean, the best case scenario for him at this point is finding, I honestly think probably a role for him on the bench, first of all. I don't think he's really a starting caliber big, which is a crazy thing. This guy was averaging 20 a game his rookie year up until he really got hurt and started playing less minutes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Philly would still be trying to build around him if it weren't for the fact that they clearly have a center. And at one point they had two centers that were better than he was. So looking at what teams he fits with, I mean, I think you want to put him in a scheme where he doesn't have to do quite as much on defense. So meaning a team that has good defenders around him and a team that is comfortable playing at a slower pace at times. Crazy thing to me, I actually think San Antonio could work for him. I think, first of all, it's a mature locker room where he's not dealing with this constant yo-yo thing. It's a winning culture mm-hmm. that you could put him in. It's a team that you know maybe he learns to kind of be better with handling certain things with double teams. and He obviously is a post-up player. Um, he's obviously someone that uh, isn't known – as a passer, but when you look back at his time at Duke, was a fantastic passer out of the post, and it's a team that, that has good defense and always finishes in the top ten in defense um, and, and has shooters that you can put around him, and so maybe there won't be as much of a threat with the idea of double teams and stuff like that. He also could come off the bench. Um, you know, he doesn't quite fit the idea of um, someone like Pau Gasol necessarily, who now is stepping on taking more threes. But I do think that that's a team where even if he was getting less time, you could at least better justify it. I think part of what looks bad now is that he's playing with Philly. Philly's still not necessarily winning every night. You know, For the last couple of years, they've been awful. And so the idea that he would ride the bench on a team like that, that's a tough realization. If he's riding the bench on a team like San Antonio, he still could be learning. Yeah. It's a team that I would trust could get him into good shape. So that actually, I mean, I never really thought about it until now, but that's a team that I would probably think, you know, could use him or with him in a better shape and maybe find a use, maybe rehab his value to some extent. And actually, you know, I think about Jalil Okafor and I just look at shows. I watch way too much HGTV with my girlfriend sometimes. And you look at shows <laughs> like uh, Fixer Upper, yeah. where it's just literally a project of fixing a house that's kind of broken and messed up. I just kind of feel like he needs to be rehabbed at this point. It's not even necessarily his fault, but it just kind of feels like he's an Al Jefferson sort of player stuck in a, you know, in a Chris Porzingis sort of league right now. And that's a tough realization at his age. I mean, the guy is so young. He's healthy, really hasn't had that many health problems just yet. And through no fault of his own, it's kind of just like stuck in no man's land. And, and you know, and the team has very publicly dangled him at this point. And so, um, it's it's a rough realization. I hope it works out for him, but I think it takes a strong team that kind of doesn't have to worry about mm-hmm. how they use him this very moment. Um, probably a playoff team to really get him out of that rut. So I hope that happens. 
Well, I agree. I think San Antonio does make a lot of sense. Um, what about our guy uh, bored in a hair salon, Eric Bledsoe? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, that that's a strange one to me. I mean, I saw the report yeah. from Mark Stein. I think he was saying that Phoenix wanted to package him mm. with Tyson Chandler and send him somewhere, mm. which I, you know, I'm more inclined to think that you just send him somewhere on his own and that would be better. I mean, I, I remember thinking this, you know, with the Knicks several times that they always wanted to dump a player that was less valued with a player that was more valued. Else, so yep, yep. I remember the Tyson Chandler trade to Dallas where they traded Tyson back to the Mavs and they threw Raymond Felton in there. Mm-hmm. I remember the Amon Shumper trade where they threw JR in as you know, the player that other teams wouldn't want. And it, it kind of hurts your return in cases like those. Like I get that Phoenix just wants to kind of start over and clear all the big veteran players off their payroll and just got to move forward. So I do get that, but I also wonder if your value would be better with Bledsoe if you just trade him on his own and just take back picks and, you know, and, and maybe a couple of players like cap fillers that could kind of replace the salary. But I don't quite understand the logic of trading Tyson Knight, other than the fact that, I mean, when you watch Tyson on film this year, he looks like he wants out. So I do get that, but you might not be able to orchestrate that trade at the same time. You might want to just trade them separately and find a separate deal for Tyson, but I don't know where Bledsoe goes. I mean, I, I think some people have brought up Milwaukee as a destination, needing another guy, you know, a star player. So they put them over the top along with Giannis and Chris Middleton and at some point Jabari Parker. But um, Malcolm Brogdon is a good player. And, I mean, in some ways is, you know, no question is a more level-headed, mature player than someone like Eric Bledsoe. He's not nearly as athletic. Uh, Bledsoe has more upside just in terms of like the sort of player he is from Brogdon who's older for someone as inexperienced as he is in the NBA. But I, you know, I, I just tend to think that Milwaukee wouldn't give up much to get that done because I think they trust Brogdon to play that role. Um, I don't know where Bledsoe goes. I mean, the, the options are somewhat limited. Most teams have a point guard already and the ones that don't, I don't know that they want someone that, you'd have to get that's that old that's been in the league for as long as Bledsoe has. And so that was kind of the Knicks' problem is that I, I think they were interested to some extent, but that doesn't really make sense or add up with their timeline very well unless they're giving up almost nothing they get on. Yeah, because, you know, you know people on my, on, on my timeline were, I guess, 50-50, uh, 55-45 on uh, something they heard that Phoenix wanted, you know, to give up Bledsoe to get Frank and, and, and uh, Willie. And some fans were like, some fans were like, no, we're not trading our future and our young guys for, you know, I, still Bledsoe is, is, is a very young guy at 27, but you know, injuries and, and stuff like that. So are you applauding the Knicks for not making that move? Or did you kind of like think about it for, for, for a hot second? The Knicks should not be, I'll just say this, the Knicks should not be applauded for not, doing something dumb. I mean, Bledsoe is a perfectly fine player. I I like him. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think his skill set is valuable. I think he still needs to improve uh, as a jump shooter to be more consistent. But, I mean, the guy is so athletic. Uh, His arms are so long. I mean, he fits the NBA, today's NBA, very well in most ways. Uh, His durability is a question. But he's he's also too old for what you want to do. I mean, we, we talk about Derrick Rose like he's 95. But, I mean, the main reason that we talk about Derrick Rose that way is because his injury history 
kind of makes him older than what he actually is on paper. Because Rose is only, what, 28, 29? Uh, Bledsoe is a little bit younger than that, but that's still too old for the, you know, for the rebuild that you're trying to really swing and, and connect on right now. Porzingis is 22. And so, I mean, you don't want to have a five, six-year gap between your best player and your second best player. And, and so that's kind of the bigger key. I mean, it just wouldn't make sense to – you know, to get off of one timeline and say, like, okay, we're finally rebuilding. We've rid ourselves of most of these guys on the roster. Now the has gone, so let's rebuild. Let's do this the right way. And then, like, it, it, the, the fact that Nick fans kind of reacted the way they did to the idea of him being on the trade block was kind of very much that kid in the candy store. Um, yeah. Or, you know, the kid on the diet or a person on a diet who, you know, that they're going to start eating healthy, and then the minute that, you know, someone waves anything fried in front of them, their head like almost pops out of the rest of their body because they're so intrigued by that food. And so, you know, I just, I think teams, the Knicks in particular have to be patient here. Um, I felt the same way about Kyrie to some extent, and that was even before uh, Carmelo had been dealt. But um, a lot of these guys don't make sense. Kyrie is actually young enough to where he would kind of fit the idea of a rebuild. But um, if you just saw this fail with another guy that is mostly an offensive player mm-hmm. who doesn't do enough outside of that to really increase your odds of winning games, um, why would you go after another guy that is kind of the same way? You've got to get someone that's multifaceted and someone that is in the same age range. And, and frankly, um, if there's any downside from Porzingis playing this well, and it's not to say that they shouldn't do this, but um, it's the idea that the Knicks might actually be a little bit too good to tank as much as they were open to this year. And so I think they finally realized you've got to do this through the draft. Uh, you hope you have your point guard of the future already in Frank Milikina, and you're hoping to be able to add to that through the draft and eventually maybe through free agency. But you've got to just take your time with this. It's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to happen because a great trade just falls into their lap. Well, since you're a big uh, music fan, uh, the nickname for Frank here in New York is, uh, is Nilmatic. I don't know if you knew that. Wow. <laughs> Why do we have a nickname for him already? We don't even I know. Don't know. We don't even know. I, I don't already. know. <laughs> and I saw it a couple times and like they somebody had a picture of <laughs> Frank with the of, of his face with the Queensbridge projects in the background. I'm like, oh my God, wow. what's going on here? But they call him Nomadic. Yeah. He played like three games. Nomadic. I feel like that's a New York thing that I when I go to other cities and, you know, every now and then, you know, fan bases will have their nicknames and their kind of monikers for these guys. But I feel like it, it's like an immediate thing. It, it becomes a much bigger deal when a player goes off. I still remember when Porzingis had that string of games. I can't remember. It was like a three-game, four-game string where he had uh, 20 points in either all the games or, you know, he had like 20 and 15 in one of them. He had a really big game against Houston. I do remember that. And my editors literally told me we have to do a story on like how people don't know what to give under the nickname. And I went around for a whole shoot around asking the teammates, you know, what nickname they gave him. And if they didn't give him one, what they would give him as a nickname and what Chris Epps himself liked as a nickname. And uh, it, it just feels like New York is much bigger on that process. I mean, I, I, not to be rude. I think that, you know, there's a lot of time to focus on that sort of thing because the team hasn't been good in a while, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on team. Let let Frank play a little bit and see if he deserves it. I I kind of feel like guys should earn nicknames. Uh, 
and the right to have one because, mm. uh, you know, I think it, it, it's not necessarily donning them as anything great beforehand. I just kind of would like to see him play. I think, you know, the more we get to see him play and see exactly what his style is, we might develop a nickname out of that as well. All right, Chris, real quick, three three quick random questions for you. Um, here we go. Who had the better Halloween costume, LeBron or Steph Curry? Um, you'd have to define better. LeBron's was creepy as hell. Very, very. Um, and, and if that's the point of Halloween, then, you know, a six-foot-eight clown, uh, I'm never really with that. So I, would, I guess I would say Curry's was better. I, I like the idea of him riding it on a bike, but I also would say that if, if you're going for creepy, since it's a creepy holiday, then mm-hmm. I'd give it to LeBron. Le- LeBron's was creepy. Uh, I don't know who okayed that, but creepy. Yeah, seeing a, a, a 6 8 6 9 260 Pennywise down the block is not something you want to see on a daily basis. No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> um. The NBA did change the NBA, um, the all-star game format. Uh, I, I did want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they they needed to change something. I don't think that this in any way really addresses the bigger problem, which is that these guys didn't give a damn about defense last year or any of the years recently. Anyway, um, putting guys on teams that they've chosen or that a captain has chosen it, it generates interest from fans, but it doesn't really solve that problem either. I know that uh, they're playing for charity and that they get to kind of pick a, a charity that they're playing for. Um, but, I mean, that, I don't really see that as enticing them to try hard on defense either. Um, so I guess we'll see. I mean, it, it'll be interesting. It'll be make for a conversation. We already know, unless he's absolutely forced to, that LeBron's not picking Kyrie um, to be his teammate. I'd be very surprised if he did. Um you know, so it'll be fun to kind of see those those calculations and kind of how that is done. I get the impression that it'll be Steph and LeBron, and um, you know, I assume that Steph will pick his teammates as starters and um, that play for his team, and that LeBron will will probably try to skip Kyrie if there's a way to do it. But um, but I don't think it fundamentally changed anything. I just think it'll be more of a talking point, and uh, you know, I'm, I think the league is probably hoping that that will distract from how uncompetitive the game is in terms of guys that are really trying to play defense. Yeah, I think part of the intrigue is to see, you know, are these guys going to be very petty? Like you mentioned, if LeBron has the first pick, you know, LeBron will be the, will be the leading vote-getter for the East, and I think it'll come down to Curry and Durant for the West or for, for that team. And then we get to see who's – Who's petty? You know, is is LeBron? Will LeBron pick Kyrie? Will if Durant has the most votes, will he pick Westbrook at all? And then my thing is, I as a fan, I don't want this this cool idea to happen. And then Curry picks Draymond, Clay, Durant, and and his, his, you know his his whole freaking team. Nobody wants to see that. So hopefully they go outside the box and start picking different players from different conferences. Because if you if LeBron's picking Kevin Love and all the Eastern Conference guys, then it's like, you know, what's the point? Yep. I mean, we just have to see how it plays out. I mean, it's, I don't think there's anything to get worked up about one way or the other. Like I said, I think it'll be a fun talking point to see who they take. And uh, mostly just with what we were saying before, Westbrook and KD and, and LeBron and Kyrie. Other than that, I mean, it's, I, I think we're, we're probably going to, it'll be more interesting to see who makes the game at all. 
not not even necessarily a starter. Maybe a little bit to see who comes in as a starter in the East with that last front court spot. You figure that Giannis and LeBron are absolute locks, but who gets the third court spot? And, um, and then who who makes the team beyond that? And, and whether certain guys can continue their streak. Carmelo is in a more visible role now. You know, he's not the star of one team, but, you know, it's kind of a part of a three-headed monster in Oklahoma City that'll probably win a lot more games than what he's won the last couple of years in New York. And so, you know, does someone like that make the team? Does Paul George make the team? Um, you know, when you look at kind of the Barron Eastern Conference, does somebody like Miles Turner? So, you know, at this rate, does someone like Victor Oladipo make the team? So, I mean, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see, but I'm not it, – it's something that I think doesn't matter all that much in the grand scheme of how the game will be played as much as it'll be a really fun talking point and kind of weigh in the way these guys think, uh, assuming that they'll they'll – make decisions on their teammates based on heart and not so much who's going to help me win this game. I don't think it's even that competitive to where they're asking themselves that question. And Chris, the final question I got for you is probably the one I've been wanting to ask you all day because me knowing that I was going to have you on, I, I, I go through your, your Twitter timeline to kind of, you know, kind of see what you've been up to and what you've been writing about or talking about. So I came across something very interesting on your Twitter timeline today and um, something about you had a game night on Saturday, right? And mm-hmm. um, there was a question asked about who was the best 1990s R&B group between right. Boys to Men, Jodeci, New Edition, and Drew Hill. And right. uh, I think one of your friends picked Drew Hill. I think you laughed at him. But you never said, uh, unless I missed it, you never said, which was the best R- 90s R&B group from those four or in general. So I'm asking you, the best ni- 1990s R&B group, according to you, is who? I So and I why? picked Boys to Men, uh, which I, when I really think about it, I mean, so we were playing a game called Black Card Revoked, <laughs> which I'd never heard of before. Uh, one of my good friends uh-huh. brought over a set of cards uh, and we played it. And it was, uh, mostly black people in my apartment and we played and I guess the idea of it is to I don't know that there are hard fast rules on this but basically uh, a question is asked like a question like that like what was the best R&B group of the 90s and the, the full room they all have cards that are A, B, C, or D and they're read out in that order A, B, C, or D you know A being Joe to C B being Boys of Men and so on and I guess you could answer it one of two ways, either what you would consider to be the best group or um, what you think everybody else will answer. And then whoever gets the majority, that's the winning card. And then if you didn't pick that, then you don't get the point on that one. And so the winner, and we didn't really play from like a competitive standpoint, but um, the winner, you know, at the end of the game is the person that has the highest point total that, you know, that was in the majority the most times. And so I picked boys and men, I mean, I figured that that would be the most popular answer, but I also am someone that um, I guess for the majority of my life would like to sing and, um, you know, has won competitions and stuff like that and singing vocal competitions. And so that was always kind of like my go-to. Like, I think their music was the just the most easy listening. I think the other ones were a little bit before my time in terms of Jodeci, uh, in terms of... Um, you know, Drew Hill, I guess, was kind of more my timeline as well. But mm. New Edition was too 
was too old for me and like a little bit before my time. So Boys and Men was kind of the first, I, I don't know if you'd call them a boy band R&B group, uh, that I really listened to where I kind of felt like I actually understood the lyrics and understood why people would like them and liked their music and everything and saw their videos. I remember coming home from church late on Friday nights and trying to turn on BT before Midnight Love went off to, right, right. to be able to watch their videos. Not that Boys and Men videos were all that great or anything like that, <laughs> that special or that involved. But, I mean, that was just music that I could kind of vibe to. And, right. um, and so, I mean, that was what I picked. Uh, I would still stick with that. Um, I mean, they're, they're on the charts and all sorts of history that they've made in terms of album sales, in terms of how long they've been on the charts with certain songs. Um, I think One Sweet Day with Mariah Carey still ranks either as the, the song that stayed on as the number one song for the longest or like second or third longest in history um, as a single. So uh, I, I would go with Boys and Men. What about you? Um, I got a few questions. Was the was the the question male R&B groups or like male and female? That's number one. No, it was just male, and so okay, it, it was right. uh, it was just those four. It's, uh, those were the only options for um, that particular question. It was Boys to Men, Joe to see Drew Hill, or New Edition. Okay, um, because obviously there's there were a lot of groups out there to be you know up front. There oh, is, of course. There's also yeah. um, BBD, One Twelve, Twenty Twenty Tony. Uh, Black Street. So that, I guess you know yep. wh- whoever you're a fan of. But I guess if you're trying to answer longevity, are the songs timeless now that you can play it right now and people just kind of dance and bop their heads? Um, album sales and impact. I I would tend to to agree with Boys to Men because damn near anything they put out, whether on their album or, or on a, on a movie soundtrack, it was played ad nauseum because they were probably the most hottest and, and, and most popular group at that time. So for me, I would say Boys to Men, there could be some competition with the Jody C's and, and New Edition. I think New Edition is more late 80s, if I'm not mistaken. So if you talk yeah, about true, true 1990s, I think Boys to Men would win that competition. But I mean, we can go, we can go at it for days for the groups, um, for the female groups. Cause that that was that was competitive too, female R&B groups too, with a uh, SWV and Destiny's Child and Vogue. You know, people are gonna start fighting over these all these arguments, bro. <laughs> yep. No, we had that question come up too on the female side. Um, a lot of people picked SWV and um, TLC was one of the other ones that yeah, came up as well. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's healthy debates to be had on both sides. I'd never played that game before. I thought it was fun. But it, it it definitely kind of put us in the middle on a lot of them because it's like, well, is it more about what I like and what I think? Or is it, you know, are you just supposed to answer a certain way because you think other people answer that way? And if, mm-hmm. if you are trying to win the game, for instance, like you would probably never pick Drew Hill as the best R&B group from the 90s, male R&B group, just because you would know that the majority of people would not pick them. And so if it's just about winning the game, so that was kind of my one complaint with it. I thought it was fun and it's kind of interesting to hear people's perspectives on it. But at the same time, you kind of knew deep down when you were going to get a pointer when you weren't based on, you know, assuming what other people would think or would vote. Yeah. I I, I just think Drew Hill was more mid to late nineties for, you know, for the whole duration of that decade. And boys to men really had 19, 
90 through let's say 96 97 like you said the the, the song with, with mariah i forgot what year that was but i think that was pretty much late in the 90s or mid 90s so they they i think they dominated that decade the most out of the drew yep. hills the, the, the jodices and um the new edition so i mean it, it's a great freaking game i might play that <laughs> sometime soon with with my boys but i think <laughs> anytime you have that kind of debate that people can say, you know what? No, you know, Chris, you're wrong. You know, Chris, you're bugging out. This, this guy's better. This female's better. I think anytime you have a debate and people just automatically pick one person or one group, that's not the best debate to have. So, I mean, you can even do the best male R and B singer of the nineties and you're going to get a whole bunch of people Same with the female side. So, um, I just thought that was very interesting to see on your timeline. I'm like, what what else can I ask Chris besides NBA stuff and, and the normal stuff? And I said, boom, 1990s male, <laughs> male R&B groups. There we go. <laughs> that's that's what we're doing. Yeah. No, I, big in the um, vocal stuff. I, I posted something a couple of weeks ago that I think probably creeped out a couple of people, but I – I had to give a, a keynote talk for, uh, well, I was on a keynote panel um, at Northwestern talking to high school journalism students that, you know, are really passionate about journalism and want to go into it when they get to college, uh-huh. most of them seniors. And, uh, and so uh, they were asking us all sorts of questions around journalism. And uh, one of the other panelists was a news anchor here in Chicago. And she basically said, you know, one of my cooler assignments over the last couple of years I got to, you know, go with someone that was a really talented singer who was auditioning for American Idol and then got to go to Hollywood with them when they made the show. And I just kind of in passing was like, oh, I auditioned for American Idol when I was, um, you know, a freshman in college. And, you know, I said it and my mic was like on enough to where the students heard it. So one of them asked, like, wait a minute, you can sing? Like, we want to hear you (laughs) sing. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not singing. And so they're like, please, like, sing. And I was like, no, we're like in the middle of a journalism channel. And so then the host of the whole thing, like the moderator was like, Chris, we really like you to sing. I was like, "Uh, maybe later. And so I didn't do it right then. But then like another 45 minutes went by, the panel ended. And then the very last student, uh, the very last question that was asked was like, the moderator came back to what we talked about before. He's like, all right, Chris, now we're at the end. Now you can sing. Like wow. there's no other questions to be asked. So now can you sing for us? And so the kids like started to clap and like kind of yeah. egg me on to do it. And some of them were like at the door getting ready to catch buses back to their schools, but they were like holding up their buses to hear me sing. Wow. It's pretty crazy. Uh, so I, I went ahead and did that, but it was creepy because I, when I auditioned for American Idol, I made it through one round. Um, oh, wow. and nice. then didn't make the next round. And so they asked me to sing and all I could think to sing was what I auditioned with and made it through the first round with. And so it was an R. Kelly song. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm singing R. Kelly. And so I posted video of it. I didn't post video of it, but someone, uh, a couple of, there were actually a lot of people that took their phones out and like recorded it. And, um, one of the people like tweeted the, the video at me after like the day of or the day after and it was not to to um to exaggerate it too much i mean it was i believe i could fly it was like three or four lines oh, from that man, I would... uh, so like the very the cleanest song he has it wasn't anything raunchy or anything like that but um but yeah no i really like to sing and i did that so much when i was in high school and even at the beginning of college i 
I mean, I, I don't talk about it much, but I frustrated at a certain point that I didn't feel like my that I was moving up and kind of getting promoted enough at the school paper at Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I went in for an interview to become an editor at the Michigan Daily. And that same day that I did that, I kind of told myself, look, if I don't get this promotion, then I'll just stop working as much at the Daily and I'll just join this acapella group that I'd auditioned for and gotten into. And so I was kind of on the fence about which one I would do, depending on what happened. And lo and behold, you know, I, I got the editor's job. And so I just told the thought group I wouldn't do it. Um, but I, I was pretty passionate about singing. I don't think it would have gone anywhere. But I, I, I think I'm a better than average singer. I, I think I could say that pretty soon. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I hope Chris did not sing I Believe I Can Fly because that was like the, the, the very typical graduation song in, in, in the mid-late 1990s. I mean, it's not like you're singing you know, ignition or I wish or some other song, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, not even if it was about like the talent or how it sounded or anything, I think I believe I could fly. It's probably one of the few songs you could do and safely say that you're not being a total creep. with yeah. So I wouldn't have, I mean, I would have known better to not have done that, but, uh, but I mean, the other thing is that when I auditioned, it was 2005. And so, it was, I mean, granted, I believe I can fly came out way before that, right. but, the timeline on that, like a lot of the stuff that people know are Kelly for now. Um, I can't remember exactly when Ignition and all those songs came out, but I think they were a lot closer to then. So I, I don't know, but for either way, I mean, I was at that point, I was singing so much in church and other stuff like that, that uh, it wouldn't have really crossed my mind of some, something raunchy uh, for an audition. And I don't, you know, I feel like, I believe I can fly. I think of a tougher song vocally than, uh, than a lot of his raunchier stuff anyway. And that was, what I was trying to show on the audition. So. Yeah, I, I think I believe I can fly happy people and like step in the name of love would have been like the, you know, the good ones to sing in front of those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the I agree ones. with you. Anything else would have been bad and questionable uh, for, for 16, 17 year old kids. Before I let you go, Chris, um, how how often do you do the podcast on, on 538 or how often does the podcast come out? that people can kind of, you know, log on and kind of uh, subscribe on iTunes and stuff like that. Sure. I appreciate that. Um, it's called The Lab. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's actually kind of a continuation of a podcast we uh, used to do. This one is just now totally NBA-focused as opposed to being more broad. The sports, the other one was called Hot Takedown. But we, we do The Lab once a week. Uh, it normally comes out either late Wednesday nights or early Thursday mornings. Uh, we record them Wednesday mornings for the most part. Uh, so, like I said, the one that we're putting out now is uh, is pretty focused on KP and how quickly he's come around this year, and kind of looking at what it might say about his future and what the next steps are for him. Um, and you know, the ones from me that are just me doing one-on-ones with Bus or you know KP or someone of that stature, or something like that. Um, those are going to be just kind of sporadic when I can make the time to get out on a road trip and talk to somebody um, and, you know, set up an interview a longer, you know, 45 minute hour long sit down with somebody. So those will be more sporadic, but if you subscribe to those, uh, whether it's iTunes or something else, um, those will come through on the same feed, the ones that I'm doing. Uh, I think they call those slightly different things. I think they call those and one, uh, my, the ones that I'm doing one-on-one, but um, as a whole, it's all under the labs umbrella, uh, 538. Well, Chris, uh, as always, uh, first of all, Chris Herring is on Twitter at Herring. 
underscore NBA senior NBA writer for ESPN538.com. Always a pleasure having you on. You're doing big things in Chicago, 538. You're singing now. Got your own podcast. <laughs> uh, I know I'm forgetting something else, but um, damn, I, I just freaking had it. Um, teaching, that's all. Key, <laughs> key things. But, I, would uh, put, I would probably put the teaching higher up than the singing. I don't really know that I could sing singing right now, but... <laughs> Maybe, maybe if I'm asked to, I might, but that's mm. about it. <laughs> Bottom line is you're doing great in Chicago. Uh, always great to have you on. Uh, I, I, I do love your work. I'm, I'm pretty sure fans on your Twitter timeline still want you to come back to New York, which you're, which you're not. But um, as long as they, they continue to support you, that that's always a great thing, man. No, I've, and, and I appreciate that more than people could realize. Um, you know, the place that I miss, I'm still, um, you know, I think I, I, I like it more coming in as a visitor and and who knows i think even this weekend i may try to make it out to a game um so we'll see but um but i appreciate all the support it it means the world to me no problem uh chris herring herring and uh underscore nba espn 538.com thank you man i appreciate it thanks man appreciate it all right man take it easy all right be easy man take care all right thank you for having me on so i appreciate that no problem anytime all right be good